Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM, brought to you this week by Luminos. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Stephen Hackett, and I'm joined here in the new year by my co-host, Jason Snell. Happy New Year, Stephen. Hooray! Whee! It's 2017. Got 2016 out the door. Finally. Good riddance. <laughs> yeah. Even though it's 2017, we're going to talk about 2016 this week. Yes. We're going to talk about some top stories of the year. I uh, got 10 of them picked out. But first, we have a little pre-flight checklist. Yeah. Tell me what's shaking down at the James Webb Telescope. That's uh, uh, See what I did there? It's <laughs> a good pun. That's a dad-level mm. pun there. You sprung on me, Jason. <laughs> so back in December, there was some news. Uh, to back up even further, when we spoke about the James Webb Telescope, we spoke about this period of testing, and a large part of this testing is to make sure that this enormous, uh, very complicated spacecraft can survive being launched atop a rocket, which, of course, is a very violent situation to find yourself in. Lots of shaking and vibration and noise and heat. And uh, all spacecraft go through this shakedown test, where basically they want to make sure that they can handle the vibrations. In early December, the Goddard Space Flight uh, Center in Maryland noted some some what they're calling uh, looking for the language here uh, unusual readings during a test uh, from a couple of accelerometers that they use but it seems like they've this has kind of worked itself out where uh, maybe it's not as big of a deal there's no uh, damage noted after the vibration test so I'm not sure if they think it's a false reading or it's just um, something that you know they've they've looked at and they've decided is not a problem. But so far, I think we have a tentative thumbs up uh, for a, a spacecraft whose history, as we spoke about, has been very long and very complicated and very expensive. Extremely expensive. Uh, it seems like yeah. uh, they are still kind of on track for their new and latest deadline. That's good. <laughs> yeah. Eight years late. <laughs> we shook it, it. Some stuff fell off. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's no, fine. no, it's fine. Just tape it back, uh, tape it back there. Yeah. So they're going to do more testing. There's going to be more to come. But at this point, it seems like uh, everything is uh, is a go. Yeah, that's good. That's good to know. That's it was scary there, but it's okay. What did listener Kathy send in? Listener Kathy sent just before we started the show a link to which we'll put in the show notes to a bunch of sounds. I don't know. I don't think we've mentioned this before. I don't think I'd seen this page before. But NASA has a page full of sounds that you can basically they're like ready to be loaded as ringtones which is kind of cool so if you want like the space shuttle main engine cut off to be a ringtone you can do that that totally happens you can do that it's uh the first time i've seen a dot m4r file in a long time which is the format the iphone uses i know right uh but yeah some some fun stuff there and there's some it's not just vehicles there's like sound clips there's some jfk thrown in there lots of fun things yeah all right so that's it. It's it, 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 you know quiet into the year, which is fine. But but things did happen this year, right? We we ten things at least, at least ten things. We're going to limit our list to ten things, and much to Jason's, I don't want to say sorrow, but sorrow, shock we, and dismay. It's more like and it. dismay. Uh, you've caused confusion and delay. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are not drafting these stories. Um, they are. Basically in a random order uh, that we kind of put the notes together, uh, but some t- 10 stories that we think were, are important to to kind of sum up 2016 in uh, not only NASA, but the space industry as a whole. And we're going to alternate these, uh, and I'm going to go first. With, oh, so it's like a draft, except we don't pick. It's the, that I picked when I put them in order a couple of days mm. ago. 
Okay. So pre, uh, is it a draft if it's pre-selected? I don't think it is. I don't think it is. Um, New Horizons uh, data finished downloading, and their next target was approved in this calendar year. So this happened in October. All 6.25 gigabytes of data uh, streamed back from New Horizons across the Deep Space Network, which is a very, very slow method of data transfer, but it's it's how all spacecraft talk to us here on Earth. And, you know, this this whole data set includes things like those really iconic photos that, you know, like Jason, you used as your wallpaper for a long time, maybe you still do, uh, those iconic images, and then a lot of other readings and and measurements from all the instruments on board. And now that you know, that time frame for that flight was very short, right? It was just like one day they passed through the system. But uh, ever since then, it's been streaming this data back. And in October, that wrapped up. And now uh, New Horizons is on its way to a Kuiper Belt object. And the one that was selected, you may remember, is 2014 MU69. Ah, uh, yes. I remember Classy it well. Names. Classy names. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's going to be a very similar type of data we see from this Kuiper Belt object from what we got back from the, the Pluto system. So... Uh, surface geology, uh, mapping the surface temperature, ma- mapping 3D surface topography and surface composition to kind of understand how this uh, body is put together and how it differs from comets or dwarf planets. Searching for any signs of atmosphere or other activity like satellites or rings, and then finally looking at its the, the mass of the object itself. So I, I don't know if anything will be as like heart stirring as those images of Pluto. I think Pluto had a lot of like emotional attachment to a lot of people, yeah. but uh, we're going to be seeing very similar types of things hopefully uh, when uh, New Horizons makes it to this Kuiper Belt object, which I believe is what I don't, I don't know the date. It's come like a year out. It's a ways out, but um, yeah. And, and my guess is that it's probably. I mean, we don't know. Um, first off, this isn't a special object in any way. It's. I mean, all objects are special, but um, <laughs> it was it, basically it, w- where uh, they were going to end up. This was going to be here. <laughs> yeah, they had they had they had some targets. It's like after we blow past Pluto, what what's out there that we could steer toward? And this is it. So it's a presumably representative Kuiper Belt object, but um. The the so the big question is, um, you know, wh- what will it look like? It probably won't look like Pluto. It'll probably, my guess is, look more like Sharon, which was, you know, uh, you know, a, a, a less. It has less personality than Pluto. Pluto has a lot of interesting things about it because it's, uh, in part, because it's so large compared to uh, some of these other objects. There are only a few large objects in the Kuiper Belt, and M- 2014 MU69 is not one of them. So, uh, but still, we've never seen one of those other Kuiper Belt objects close up. Uh, Pluto is essentially the first of those that we saw. So, uh, it will be cool uh, regardless. And uh, do you know when that's uh, happening? Did you look that up? Uh, I am looking, and I'm trying to read while you were talking, and I can't. It's some real time. Well, it's it's just real time. The the unfortunately, the NASA New Horizons uh, web page doesn't have like a counter yet for like when are they visiting this next uh, this next thing. That's, I don't that's see it on bad. Wikipedia. I, I think it is New Year's Day. I think 2018, but um, yeah, we'll see. Uh, January 2019. It says. Okay. January I found an article January 2019 so we got we got a ways we got a couple of years left before we visit 2014 MU69. All right, number 2 on the list is and thank you for giving this to me because this is uh this would have been my number one draft pick I suppose. 
uh, to no one's surprise, it's Planet Nine. And uh, Planet Nine is not a thing. It is not a real thing yet. But it's the Planet Nine hypothesis was something that people talked about a lot in astronomy circles this year. Uh, it was... Uh, uh, the 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 public took notice of it with uh, publishing of uh, some speculation by Mike Brown, who is well known for having discovered a lot of these other Pluto scale objects in the outer solar system and sort of kicked off the discussion about how Pluto is not a planet. Uh, and he wears that badge with pride. And uh, one of his associates, a Caltech, Constantine Batchigan. And in January 2016, they announced that they have a theory that they worked out with a lot of different models that suggest there is a large planet, um, many Earth masses in size, uh, that is in the outer, extreme outer solar system, far beyond the range of anything that, um, you know, any planets that we know now. It's in a much more kind of ridiculous thousands of years orbit. Um, and they hypothesize it as Planet Nine. That's what they call it, since they, they uh, once again, Mike Brown is kicking Pluto when it's down. Yeah. <laughs> and the idea behind Planet Nine is that they looked at the locations of objects in the outer solar system, what they call the extreme TNOs, the trans-Neptunian objects. And they found that there are a bunch of these objects that have similar characteristics in terms of their orbits they all tend to come into about the same location and then go back out and what what the way the theory runs is that that can't happen and um you know it's just it, it could be random but it's highly unlikely that it is and so therefore there's some other force at work that's that's causing that and they ran a bunch of computer models and came up with this model for this large object in orbit way beyond what we uh what we've seen uh for our other planets it would be, it's a completely different kind of orbit and uh they're looking for it now now they were not the first to speculate that there might be a large object out there there's been a lot of talk about that for a long time and then there were particular Particular uh, hypotheses put out there by uh, Chad Trujillo and Scott Shepard in 2014, and by a whole uh, group of, of people in 2014 as well, a little bit later. Um, but the one that seems to have caught the public's eye and where they have um, have done more modeling to suggest the details of where this object might be is uh, Brown and Batigan in January of 2016. So they're looking for it. Other people are looking for it. There have been other object discoveries that have happened more recently that seem to uh, fit with the hypothesis, which is interesting. That's more evidence. But it, again, nobody's discovered this planet because you have to see it. So they're all looking where they think it might be. And that would be the ultimate confirmation of Planet Nine. And when, when we can truly say it's been discovered, is uh, somebody needs to see it with a telescope. And that's very hard because it's going to be very dark because it's very, very far away from the sun. So they're looking and we have to wait. And I think Mike Brown said that he thinks it's a 90% chance. Other people have said it's sort of like an 80 or 70% chance. So there are skeptics out there. But the people who looked at this data think that there's a very good chance that this object is out there. And Mike Brown, I think, said that they'll, you know, they hope to find it in the next few years. So up next, uh, gravitational waves detected. So if, if you remember this article, it actually or this story actually came up twice this year. Uh, LIGO, which is the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Wave Observatory, detected uh, gravitational waves, and this was a important part of Albert Einstein's general theory of relativity. And it is it is thought that these are 
caused by two black holes basically colliding and rippling, if you will, the fabric of space-time. And LIGO is this huge project. It has been super expensive, and there was basically very uh, little information coming out of the project. Uh, I think a lot of people kind of looked down on it as, as something that wasn't ever going to turn anything up. But twice in 2016, they published stories that they heard, I guess. They, they, had, they have some sound clips on the website, but um, detected these gravitational waves here. Uh, and I think that's, um, I think it's pretty cool. Is that we don't talk much about sort of the, the theoretical and the, and the, the physics side of, of space. It's something that I at least mm-hmm. am not super familiar with or comfortable with, uh, speaking kind of off the cuff, but it is an important part of this stuff and plays a big role in what these scientists not only uh, do, but what they study and, and how plans get made to, to fly you know, and, and, and see planets and telescopes. All this stuff is related. And sure. th- this story of gravitational waves, you know, continues to paint the picture that Einstein had, had it right. Yeah. And this is the, you know, just the idea that you can have, basically we can have observatories that are observing the universe based on gravity instead of based on light is mind blowing. But that was one of the outcomes of relativity and we got in 2016 we got confirmation that it's real and we can we can do it so that's pretty awesome Mm -hmm. all right number four on our list of the top 10 stories of 2016 for space is i mean it's our it's the space discovery you know space travel space probe story of the year it's juno our friend juno who is now in orbit around jupiter it arrived on the 4th of July. We've talked about it a lot. It's had some issues. It's still in a, uh, it's not in the orbit we hoped that it would be in at this point, which is a very close in orbit to Jupiter, doing lots and lots of mapping, mapping of the of the cloud tops and analyzing deep into the atmosphere. And instead, it has had some, uh, some, some hardware issues that have left it in a much uh, longer orbit. So it's, you know, it's what a 50 days or something like that between mm-hmm. orbits yeah. or in 50 day orbit between close passes at Jupiter. It's unclear whether the hardware issues will be resolved. Um, it looks like they'll be able to do the science regardless, but they, it might take them a, a lot longer to do it. But um, but we've so rarely, as we detailed in our Juno episode, we so rarely send probes to outer solar system planets. It doesn't happen that often that we have one in system. Um, And so Juno is giving us a whole lot more information, including some spectacular photography of Jupiter itself, um, because that's its focus is right on, you know, right on the planet itself, looking down at the, uh, at the storms and, uh, and, and seeing deep into the atmosphere. So we understand the composition of Jupiter better. So for number five, I picked, um, I kind of combined some topics and talk to talk a little bit about commercial crew and, co- and commercial companies in space travel. So it was a big year for space startups, really kind of focusing on SpaceX and Blue Origin, the company, of course, owned by Jeff Bezos. Uh, SpaceX landed its first Falcon 9 in 2015, but saw several landings uh, at sea. And I think, I think one more, maybe two more uh, on land uh, in 2016. Mm-hmm. But all that came to a screeching halt for them on September 1st when, of course, they had a Falcon 9 explode on the pad during fueling, which in which they lost not only the rocket itself and the uh, launch facility, the, the launch pad was heavily damaged, but lost their customer payload as well, which was yeah. a uh, satellite designed to uh, 
deliver internet access. And uh, it uh, it all went up in smoke. And the company has not had a return to flight uh, mission yet. It was rumored to be the end of December, but that didn't happen. Uh, so we'll see, you know, when they end up flying again. And they also, even though they've they've recaptured a, a bunch of these Falcon 9s, they haven't reflown any of them. That was two on the calendar for the end of 2016, and it didn't happen because of this accident. Uh, but meanwhile, you have Blue Origin. We, we've spoken like about the difference between the two companies. Uh, they're very different from each other. Uh, but Blue Origin is making advances and testing its reusable rocket. They're not doing customer missions. It is complete testing and R&D at this point, but they are they're doing video of it and, and sharing about it now. And they have flown the same rocket several times, and uh, including a test where they in October where they had the capsule escape system. So if you have a capsule on top of a rocket, something goes wrong, you can pull the capsule away. Uh, all the, the NASA... Capsules have had it, uh, the SpaceX one uh, has it, and the uh, Blue Origin one has it as well. And they said, hey, you know, we're going to pull this apart, but uh, we don't expect it to go well. They kind of set expectations for failure that the rocket yeah. may not survive because there's a lot of um, a lot of rocket wash. You know, you, you light the, the motors on the capsule to pull it away and the rocket below it uh, can get thrown off course or even be destroyed. But it went flawlessly. And they landed the rocket, and they landed the capsule, and they continue to test and continue to push forward. You know, they, they are not flying customer missions. They are not putting things into orbit. Their deal, kind of at the beginning at least, is going to be more space tourism. And kind of Bezos has described it as kind of building the infrastructure for other people to do things uh, in Earth orbit. But uh, I think it's interesting they're doing it in the open and, and kind of showing it off as they go. And uh, I think both companies are fascinating and are definitely worth keeping an eye on in 2017. Yeah, for sure. All right, that's five. We have five more to go. Uh, this seems like a good time to tell people about our sponsor, doesn't it? It does. So this episode is brought to you by our uh, our good friends at Wobbleworks, the makers of Luminos. It's an app that combines the most advanced astronomy features on mobile with the careful craftsmanship you find on the very best ios apps so listen if you're a serious astronomer thank you for listening uh to us meatheads talk about this we uh if and you want to study the largest catalog of stars and deep space objects available on mobile devices guess what luminos has the tools you need but i think more likely if you're a casual astronomy enthusiast uh, luminos lets you do things like fly out to a comet land on a moon of the solar system simulate an eclipse you can explore all of space, meteor showers, satellites. It's got telescope mount control, and it's all in this single app built on an advanced simulation engine that's been more than 10 years in the making. It's always being optimized for the newest features of iOS devices, and it includes everything for one price. There's no in-app purchase system, no annoying ads, nothing like that. You buy it, you get it, you keep it, and you get the updates. Wobbleworks has more free software updates. Version 9.1 came out recently with translucent terrain, multiple sky orientations, uh, comet models, that is beautiful theoretical position for our friend planet nine theoretical if they knew exactly where it was they would be publishing that uh, and a whole lot more uh, for uh, iphone ipad and apple watch you can find video screenshots and many more details at wobbleworks.com and of course you can just type luminos into the app store search and you can find it on the app store thank you so much to luminos and wobbleworks for being longtime supporters of liftoff Tell me, tell me about Beam. Oh, Beam! I'm glad you gave me this one. You know how you know how I love inflatable spaceships. It's true. They're the best. 
Bigelow Airspace is a company that is uh, working on the idea of uh, inflatable space habitation. So they created something called BEAM, the Bigelow Expandable Activity Module that launched to the International Space Station in 2016, was attached, it was inflated, and it, it basically is behind, it's like a closet behind a closed door in the International Space Station, but they open it up every three months or something, and they do a bunch of tests and readings and all that. And this is really, um, the goal here is to do the first essentially long duration test of an inflatable module to see what the issues are and if it's a a plausible uh, approach because obviously you could get a lot more space uh, uh, that's habitable in a space station or a spaceship if you could have something that was very compact on launch and that you then inflated when you were out in space. That's the premise here. Beam isn't very big. Like I said, it's kind of like a walk-in closet. But <laughs> Bigelow has lots of ideas for space stations and potentially uh, space station modules, including ISS modules, that would be um, that would be expandable like this. And there's talk that if you're going on a long-duration space flight to someplace like Mars, that you might actually want an expandable module um, or several expandable modules in your spaceship because you're going to want more space for humans if they're if they're uh, on a long space flight. So this year was our first real test of a of a human uh, habitable expandable module on uh, the International Space Station, and that's Beam. So I'm going to talk a little bit about exoplanets for uh, for number seven. Of course, we are really in this season of just a huge number of exoplanets being discovered and being uh, announced thanks to uh, the work of NASA and JPL. Um, but a big story this year was about our closest star neighbor, uh, Proxima Centauri. And there is a red dwarf star. It's like 4.2 light years away or so. Yeah. And... Uh, a exoplanet was discovered circling that star uh, by an observatory in Chile. And what's uh, interesting about this, A, it's the closest one by far, which is is always fun to think about. You know, in the in the near, you know, the distant future, we can travel at light speed. We could get there. Uh, but it's thought to be Earth-sized as well, yeah. Um, and it's thought to be Earth-sized. So it, it captures the imagination, I think. And I think for... Uh, a lot of people, it puts uh, sort of um, a name to like the exoplanet thing, right? Like it's it's easy to think about like hot Jupiter's uh, way far away, but this is close and this could potentially be Earth-like. It's a red dwarf star, so uh, obviously it would be a little bit different from where we are, but uh, still really interesting that something uh, relatively in our neighborhood is um, is there just circling its sun, you know, maybe maybe waiting on us one day. Yeah, it's uh you know because it's a uh a dwarf star, a red dwarf, it's a it's a small cool star. And so the habitable zone around it is a lot uh closer to the star than it than the habitable zone around the sun. But um it's uh it's still possible and we nobody knows about it. there's tidal locking issues and there's lots of other issues here right it's not it's not an earth analog in that way but it is a plant ro- pro- probably rocky planet in the habitable zone of the nearest star to the earth that's very exciting and because it's so close it's possible that as we um improve as we talked to uh, natalie battaglia from uh, from nasa about this earlier this year it's possible we'll be able to use methods of direct observation of that planet in the future with improved telescopes and that's pretty cool because we may be able to see like does it have an atmosphere 
is there a sign of life in the atmosphere? Like we might be able to tell all sorts of things about that planet um, in the future. It's pretty cool. Uh, number eight on our list, I just put in the handle, uh, probably not aliens. <laughs> and this is the probably not aliens roundup. They're really two big, probably not aliens stories this year, but I think it's worth mentioning them. One is another really great, uh, name for something that when you have an infinite amount of stuff in the universe, uh, you know, you run out of names. So it's called HD one, six, four, five, nine, five. It's a G-type star located in the constellation of Hercules. It's not a particularly interesting star. It's a sun-like star. But a uh, radio signal was received uh, from there that uh, seemed to be, uh, at least in some, in some circles, there was speculation that it was possibly a, uh, a, a signal that could be considered sent by an intelligent life form of some sort and it needed follow-up uh, a lot of this is one of those cases where this is why we call it probably not aliens uh you need to apply just occam's razor you need to apply a great deal of skepticism because this would be the single greatest discovery in the history of humanity and guess what uh not so much yep uh, <laughs> yeah it's 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 probably not anything probably not aliens but uh it's fun it's it, uh, it's unclear if anybody ever really thought that it was aliens, except for somebody who got excited in the press and maybe like misheard something. But oh well, whatever. Um, the next for them for my next trick is KIC eight four six two eight five two. You know this one, Stephen. This is the alien megastructure star. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the dimming, right? That's a fun one. Yeah. Yeah. So this is the story here is that this is a weird star and this is not a we don't. The other story is like we thought we might have seen something, but it probably wasn't anything. This is we see something and we don't know what it is, which is there is a star that has these um, that, that, that Kepler has noticed has these crazy dips in brightness and that we've looked at with other instruments as well. And nobody understands quite what's happening. The star is getting fainter with time, but it's also got uh, dimming and um, and and brightening. It's dimming faster than one would expect. Nobody really understands what they're seeing. Now, this gets into probably not aliens because one of the possibilities that somebody suggested was like an alien megastructure, which is the idea of like a ring, like a halo or a ring world kind of scenario where you would have like a huge structure that would block the light from the star. A more uh, natural phenomenon would be a, uh, a, a, sort of a hailstorm of comets or a planet that broke up or some other kind of object dimming the light. But what's fun about this one is that everybody can look at this star and know that it's weird and nobody knows why. So that's always the fun of science is trying to figure out why you're seeing something you didn't expect. But I'll tell you this, it's probably not aliens. Just stand by that, aren't you? Just, just ride that train. You know, I mean, <laughs> if 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 I say it's always not aliens, I'm going to be right basically every time. And the one time I'm wrong, that's fine. I'll own that one. There you go. I think that's a, I think that's the safe way to play it. Don't want to be the the podcaster who cried alien. So, uh, for my my last one, 
uh, Osiris Rex comes to mind, the asteroid sampling mission that just launched just a couple of months ago in September. And uh, as you may remember, the spacecraft will travel to an asteroid and then take a sample. And how they do that, basically, they fly really close to the surface and then blast it with nitrogen gas and then capture like the dust and the debris that gets kicked up. And then that sample will be returned to Earth in 2023. So if all goes as planned, OSIRIS-REx will join a very uh, exclusive club of space missions that return uh, material from another world uh, to ours, which is pretty neat. And it's um, it's cool because it's going on right now. You know, you were talking about Juno. These missions uh, don't come up every day. We, we have really only a handful of exploratory robotic missions at any one time. And sort of Juno uh, is one story from 2016, but I think uh, OSIRIS-REx is sort of the, the other side of that coin, where it's not studying a planet, it's studying uh, an asteroid, but uh, returning it to Earth for study by scientists here will be uh, hopefully very illuminating about material that existed at the beginning of the solar system. So some of that debris and some of the, the leftover dust and material can tell us uh, a story about how the solar system, including our own planet, came to be. And, you know, asteroids are kind of like uh, sort of like floating time capsules of those early days. And so we will uh, hopefully be able to to learn a lot about that. Um, plus, you're blasting an asteroid with nitrogen gas, and that's just kind of cool in my book. Yeah, just sweeping up, sweeping up stuff. That's right. It's like a big like a snowblower or something. Yeah, yeah. a space vacuum cleaner. Space vacuum, that's it. Good, good point. Nice metaphor. Uh, number ten. We're at the end. Uh, here's the last one. It's ExoMars. Now, ExoMars is one of those things where normally it would be like, "Yay, space probe around Mars. We love it. It's great." And yes, that's also true. Unfortunately, this is because there was other stuff going on. It is a mixed bag. Uh, the the ExoMars Trace Gas Orbiter (TGO) uh, is in orbit around Mars now. It is methane mapping. It's like looking at what various gases are in the the tenuous uh, but present Martian atmosphere and trying to understand things. I mean, we, it's great. We've uh, we've got. I keep saying this, but it's like we've got this battery of of satellites around Mars and we're learning more and more about it. And it's like knowing lots of details about Mars and how it works and what's in the atmosphere. And that's all pretty cool. Uh, and so it's, it's there doing its job. Uh, the unfortunate part of it is that there was also a little lander called Scaparelli that was, uh, part of the ExoMars mission and it didn't make it. Mm-mm. It, uh, it was supposed to, um, look around on uh on uh Meridani Planum during the the uh, dust tor- storm season and look at what things look like when they're really dusty but instead it just made a uh dust pile of its own as it plowed into the surface because the landing didn't go right it got through the atmosphere there is there is data of it up until like i think the last 30 seconds but it seems to have had a software problem where it um it didn't or maybe it was an electrical problem but it basically it got a it 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 released things like the parachutes at the wrong time and i mean basically the descent stuff didn't work right and as a result since we have such a great fleet of of uh, spacecraft going around uh, mars we now have some wonderful pictures of like the crater yeah. left and where yeah. it's where it's uh parachutes blue too and where the heat shield got dropped but um it didn't make it rest in peace little buddy 
Yeah, sorry, dude. I mean, again, it's not the be all end all of the mission. Um, and as we've said a, a few times, it's uh, hard to land on Mars. Landing on Mars has proven to be very difficult. The U.S. has had some great success with it lately, but it's still it's it's a hard hard problem to solve. And unfortunately, Schiaparelli didn't make it. So I think that's a good roundup of 2016. Yeah, so if you want to think positive about 2016, hey, think of that trace gas uh, satellite. And if you want to think about, like most of us think about 2016, just think about the Scaparelli lander. (laughs) (laughs) If you want to find uh, links to all these stories, you can do so on our website, relay.fm slash liftoff slash 37. You can get in touch with us there or on Twitter. Jason is at jsnell, and you can find me there at ismh. And until our next fortnight, Jason, say goodbye. Happy New Year, everybody. We'll see you in a fortnight. Adios.